Hello, listeners, book lovers, and friends. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Holly Payne, the host and producer of Page One, a podcast that celebrates the stories and craft that go into writing the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. So why create a podcast about the first page? All master storytellers have a secret. Their first page is often their most rewritten page because it has to work so hard to achieve so much, hooking the reader. And for those of us intrigued by how master storytellers work their magic, I thought it'd be a lot of fun to talk to the world's most beloved authors about the craft. And today on episode 34, we have the great honor of talking with Dean Koontz again. We talked two years ago in January of 2021 about his book, Quicksilver. And today we get the extraordinary opportunity to hear from him again about his latest novel, The Bad Weather Friend, published by Thomas and Mercer, January 23rd, about a nice guy named Benny, who meets a friend that is sent to take care of the bad people who bring Benny down. So this story is one of a kind and being touted as a breathtaking new kind of thriller, which I'm really excited to discuss. And for most of you listening, Dean Koontz has been a household name for as long as we can remember. He holds a very special place in the hearts of millions of readers around the world and is known as one of the world's best-selling masters of suspense. You're probably familiar with some of his latest books, which include After Death, The House at the End of the World, The Big Dark Sky, Quicksilver, which we discussed in episode 11, The Other Emily, Elsewhere, Devoted, and of course, The Bad Weather Friend, which we're about to dive into soon. And maybe if we're lucky, he'll give us a hint at what he's working on now. Because guess what? This man never stops writing. For more than 50 years, he continues to sit at his desk every morning and write from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. if I listened correctly to what we talked about two years ago. Talk about a discipline practice, which has rendered him one of the most prolific writers in our lifetime. He has already written more than 100 books, and we learned in the last discussion that he's aiming to beat Henry James' track record of 120 books in this lifetime, which we know he's right there. And since we last talked, Dean's written four more books, adding to his growing lists, which have sold more than 500 million copies to date and have been published in 38 languages. Today, I have many follow-up questions about how Dean does what he does and continues to be an optimist in the face of so much darkness we're all facing these days. One of the things I loved about Dean is his humanity and his humility. He's the kind of writer who derives so much delight in the process of creating such imaginative characters who go on some very wild adventures, like the one we're about to discuss. But first, I want to provide just a bit more context for those listeners who haven't had a chance to hear our first conversation in episode 11. It's important to have even a quick snapshot of his background to appreciate the sweeping arc of his career. After winning a short story competition in the Atlantic Monthly, Kuntz launched his career in his early 20s, having zero expectations for how his books would land. Nobody, not even he knew, he had any idea that nearly 80% of his books would go on to become New York Times bestsellers. That is Hall of Fame status, just so you know, folks. He is also one of 12 writers ever to have 14 of these books rise to number one on the hardcover bestseller list. 
And if that's not impressive, 16 of his books have risen to the number one position in paperback. His books have also been major bestsellers in Japan and Sweden, and he has been hailed by Rolling Stone magazine as America's most popular suspense novelist. Dean is also a huge dog lover and is originally from Pennsylvania, where I also grew up. He currently lives in Southern California with his wife, Gerda, and their golden retriever, Elsa, and the enduring spirit of their goldens, Trixie and Anna. They are longtime supporters of Canine Companions for Independence, and you can visit his website at www.deankuntz.com. Dean Kuntz, welcome to page one. Thanks for having me there. Oh, it's just such a delight. And I know listeners are eager to learn from you again. Let's jump into this latest novel, The Bad Weather Friend, that's now available for pre-order in bookstores, libraries, and of course, Amazon and Publication Day coming up here. And because we avoid all spoilers on page one, just like the last time, I'm only going to share the book summary for listeners, if that's okay with you. Mm. Okay. Yes. Hey. Benny Katzpah's perpetually sunny disposition is tested when he loses his job, his reputation, his fiance, and his favorite chair. He's not paranoid. Someone is out to get him. He just doesn't know who or why. Then Benny receives an inheritance from an uncle he's never heard of, a giant crate, and a video message that bears this. All will be well in time. How strange, though it's a blessing, his uncle promises. Stranger yet is what's inside the crate. He's a seven-foot-tall, self-described bad-weather friend named Spike, whose mission is to help people who are just too good for this world. As Benny is. Spike will help find Benny's enemies, and he'll deal with them. And this might be satisfying if Spike wasn't such a menacing presence with terrifying techniques of intimidation. In the company of Spike and a young waitress whom P.I. in training named Harper, Benny plunges into a perilous high-speed adventure, the likes of which never would have crossed the mind of a decent guy like him. Okay, let's do this. Let's go on this journey with Benny and Spike and Harper. Will you go ahead and please read the first page of the Bad Weather Friend, Dean? I certainly will, which will prove to you why I don't do audio books. I'll give this a shot. Uh, what I love about the show is we get to hear the authors reading their own mm. work, and that's always just a real treat for anyone listening. Here we go. The chapter's titles, Florida, nine feet long, four feet wide, four feet deep, weighing well over a thousand pounds. The crate was a hateful thing, not simply because it was an awkward load that could cause a serious injury to those who hadn't moved but also because it gave off what late peoples call weird vibes and what is how Roscoe Mosley described as bad mojo. Dooley and Roscoe were employees of Mayweather Universal Airframe on a humid afternoon in October in a box truck containing a long-time forklift rated for 4,000 pounds. They arrived at the Colonel's Warehouse in Boca Raton, Florida, a flock of red-crowned parrots were busy eating nuts that the colonel had scattered on the pavement for them. As the truck drew near, birds flurried away, skyward, a flung Joseph's coat of flashing colors. Colonel Talmadge Clerkenwell looked older than Florida. His three-piece linen suit glowed as white as his hair, 
mustache and goatee. If he hadn't been real thin and standing as straight as a plumb line, you might have thought he was the fable founder of the KFC restaurant chain. The crate, like the colonel, was waiting on the concrete apron outside the warehouse. Roscoe Mosley hated the thing on site and dubbed it the beast. Colonel Clark, well, was courteous, so affable and at ease that it seemed he must have spent his life loving being loved through a long smoothness of days. He was also mysterious. No sign suggested what the warehouse might contain. A colonel responded to questions about the place and the ship with a graceful illusion that it almost sounded as if he'd answered them. I would love to know about your decision to choose the focus on the crate. And I think for a lot of the listeners, they are writers and they're aspiring authors. They are storytellers who are learning the craft and readers, obviously, who are interested in, in how you do what you do. Can you share with us the choice be behind starting with this? It does seem like a story that you would begin with the lead character, Bailey, who has the worst day of his life. This is a take on the story of Joe, where everything goes wrong and the afflictions that fall upon Betty are numerous and terrible. But if you start with something like that, even though Betty is a very appealing, nice character with this sense of humor, they're starting with a little bit darker material than I wanted. And so I thought we need to start with this mysterious crate in the sense that this is on its way to Bailey and whatever is in it is going to make a difference in this awful day. So we start with that, follow the crate. And then when I feel that was all established, and you want to know what's in that crate. Then, then we go to Bendy and his worst day of his life. And that consequence of that, I hope, is that, yeah, a lot of bad stuff is happening to Bendy, but something on it is on its way that's going to make a big difference in all that. And so the book becomes more friendly in that way. It's one of those age-old games that you can play with a, a reader in a good way. A box arrives, what's in the box? Um, it works because we want to know. You also are creating a sense of mystery around the box and based on the foreboding sense that these uh, guys have with it at the beginning that carries forward. And I don't want to spoil anything right for the readers, but this book is being touted as a new kind of thriller. You're breaking the fourth wall. Share with us the choice behind all that. It's sometimes as you write, you just do things that you think, okay, that might not work, but I can always go back, clean it up if it doesn't work. But the way this evolved was interesting to me. I had a number of moments in the story that I simply directly addressed the reader on behalf of the characters, and mostly it was toward the latter third of the book, uh, especially in the last couple of chapters. And my editor liked it so much that she said, my main recommendation is you do more of this and go forward into the novel and find places to break that fourth wall. I create what they call metafiction. And I was surprised because I thought 
there might be resistance to the very fact of death. And when there wasn't, I went forward and found those movements. And when it was done, I thought, that is a lot of fun. It adds to the book. And then, not long after, somebody sent me a new edition of A Christmas Carol. And I picked it up and started to read it. And my heavens, there's Dickens doing this very thing, directly addressing the reader in an amusing way. And I thought, okay, it's not that good, but I think it's been a technique long forgotten in most of genres. And I just finished a book and what truth more of that. And yet I found myself laughing out loud throughout the course of both books, which is a thing that is tricky to pull off in a novel that is a suspense novel, but I find it a fascinating form to work by combining those two things in a way that doesn't upset one or the other. Yeah, absolutely. In the last call that we had, we got to talk about the four influences of your work. And we joked, this is the Dean Koontz DNA, where you get the poetry from Ray Bradbury, who is probably one of the most influential writers on your work. And then the fierce pacing from Heinlein. And from Sturgeon, you learned how to navigate weirdness and to allow that to create these unique, strange situations in your stories. And then, of course, Jack Douglas, the humor. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Okay. All right. So any writer knows that humor is the hardest thing. How did you learn this? Everyone knows you as the father of suspense, but I don't know if everyone talks about your humor. And I think it's just as strong as the suspense. <laughs> you have to understand that when I started doing that many years ago, publishers were not pleased. Uh, I was told you can't have humor in a novel that's meant to keep the radar on the edges is a her scene. And I just thought that was nonsense. I thought if it laugh with the characters, they're more real because in our own lives, it's humor that gets us through. And if we didn't have a sense of humor, life would be pretty grim. So when characters have a sense of humor, they seem more real. And if they're more real and likable, then we care about it. And then we follow the events better. Plus, comic. Novels that are suspenseful give you more than one thing to want to know what is going to be said next that I might laugh at, as well as what might happen next that scare me. So it doubles the appeal, it seems to me. Certainly for me as a reader, it does. Absolutely. You have a quote. It's an epigraph at the beginning of this book. You have a quote from Job, but you also have this quote from James Thurber. Humor is emotional chaos remembered in tranquility. And yeah, I think of all the times I think back to the time I get run over by a drunk driver and I used to make jokes about bed sores because I'd been in a hospital bed for so long. But after so many years, you can look back and go, wow, there's humor in absurdity. Is there not? Right? There's humor in almost everything in life. It's just it's such a courtesy to the reader to be able to take a breath and come down from the intensity. I often think of a story like an EKG. If you keep at that intensity the whole time, it, it's going to flatline. It's almost going to cannibalize itself in terms of the emotion. 
don't you think? I'm curious, how did you stand up to the publishers and how did you start to trust your own sense of what you wanted to deliver these stories to your readers? Reader reaction gives you the courage to do more and more things. I remember the first couple of books that there was anything like that, you know, publisher was really upset and what. But watchers, she had no other bit, and it was less human that, that lightning and more humor. And gradually it increased and it wasn't taken well. But readers took it well. I got a lot of mail, people liked it. So that gives you the encouragement to keep doing something. Plus, which I have to like what I'm doing in order to put in these long hours. And I like much more sometimes I'm laughing at something in the, in the story or the character's dialogue. I have a book finished called Going Home in the Dark. And there's a character in it who's the most pompous and arrogant person I've ever written. And her dialogue is hilarious because she has nothing but contempt for other beings. And she will say things that you can't imagine anyone can say. And the other characters simply have to roll with it. Uh, because she's a person with authority. And if she hadn't walked into the story, it would have been a lot grimmer than it was. So whenever I get a character who can say something funny, think something funny, or be inherently funny, I know everything is on its way and going to work well. So reader feedback is, has been important about that. Now, from time to time, I get a letter from somebody sorely afflicted by the last book and what they're afflicted by and the way they describe it becomes very apparent. They didn't get anything. So it all seemed, there's some of this that's just silly. Yes, there is. Uh, and that was intentional. And that's not silly, really. It, it, uh, I know what they mean when they say that, but it's an attempt to capture just what you said, the absurdity that is a definite element of life. And that's what Thurber was saying. You can't watch the news anymore without a sense of the absurdity of everything. And in the midst of, I think, the darkest times I've ever lived in. So it seems like the darker things get, the more absurdity you can see. And it's almost like that's defined design. Okay, I'm going to put you through this, but I'm going to give you a chance to laugh a lot. Uh, and that's what I tried. Well, you so succeed. And I appreciate that those reader comments and the earnestness and attentiveness to the work itself. And sometimes maybe it's lost on them that you're dancing with contrasts. And, and sometimes that's maybe not appreciated in terms of the overall effect. But for the majority of the people, they get it. If not 99%, you always have the 1% gives the one-off comment. But you just said something, Dean, that it fascinates me. I think it probably would fascinate many people here. And I'm going to back up. You had said something about when a character walks into the story. When I've had characters race across my mind and I realize, oh, my God, who was that? The questions start to come and I realize this is a character that I need to pay attention to. Will you talk about that? Because a lot of people don't like to talk about it. And I think it's one of the most mysterious things about this process is the characters that come to us. And the reason I'm asking is because I want to segue into how was Benny born for you? I know 
Quinn Quicksilver is the character we got to talk about in episode 11 when we talked two years ago. And now you have Benny Catspaw. And I would love to know how did he dance into the story? And when do you know that character is going to be a protagonist? I knew from the beginning about Benny because I knew this was a story that was a version of the story of Joe and that there was going to be this character who was going to be put the ringer, but come out okay. But then it was also, I had been watching some TV in which the shows were all about people who were awful, not people you would want in your life. Yet they were the heroes, or we may say any clues of the series. And at some point you go, I have no interest in this person anymore. Yes, for a while, their outrageousness grips you. But at some point, I thought, I'm so tired of this. And it made me start to think there isn't a lot of of old-fashioned kind of approach where the character is decent and good. We have to be seen. They have all these flaws. There's, there's this, there's that. And I thought, no, I want this guy who's a pretty good guy. And then the whole world falls in line. And it goes back a little bit to uh, something that was more fashion. And trying to modernize it, well, bring it into the modern vernacular was a challenge. It was fun. But what you said also is, though Benny came into my mind, he had to be sweet and funny, but not sack. He had to be, as Spike says to him, Spike's job in the last 1,800 years, you'll discover, has been to take care of those people who are nice but not so nice that they're foolish. And that's what he tells Bailey. You've got to be nice, but don't be so nice you're foolish. And how he shows that to the Orson book, how that balance is achieved is part of what the book is about. But it, you talk about characters walking book. That's one thing I guess a lot about, about storytelling. You don't start with the entire cast. You start with a couple of people. And I remember after the chapter with Benny, who loses his job uh, and just about everything else in his life one day. And it's neat because it's so over the top terrible. And Benny has no idea where he's going to turn. And I know where he's going to turn. He doesn't even know this person exists, but he's going to turn to Spike eventually. But I have had another Karen before Spike ever shows up on this game scene at a show, Benny in a relationship with somebody. And when he leaves that terrible scene where he's fired from his job and everything else, he needs to go somewhere that you just see him as he lives his life outside of the job that's lost. And that's when the character of Fat Bob walked onto the stage. And Bob is a private investigator and a close friend of Bailey's. And just one of the most healing characters I could imagine. And Bob doesn't play the biggest role in the story. It's pretty funny what actually happened to Bob. And but we never lose track of it. And Benny's character then comes more fully out in his conversations with Bob because you're getting a reaction to him from somebody who likes him, but somebody who's very direct with him. And it's when those characters walk on the scene, and that sequence, another character walks on the 
the scene, this character of Harbor, who is a waitress, but shows up shortly later in a much more prominent role. When they walk on to feel the humanity of it, it's the greatest thing. I just had to answer a question per social media post. How do you write these eccentric characters that make us relate to them? And my answer to that was longer than this, but what it comes down to is, it's recognizing that we're all eccentric. So when you write an eccentric character, you treat them with respect and compassion. And then every reader is going to like them, I think. I'm just taken with writing characters that aren't just CIA agents or this or that stock role that are people who we see in a kind of rounded way and that we laugh with and feel for it and get a sense of their eccentricities. And that might want to stick in the line a lot more throughout that book. Absolutely. And I think you just answered my question too. I think what's happening with so many of those kind of characters is we only get to know them through their role. We don't really see their humanity. We only see it maybe in a few like cliched moments that are obligatory for that writer in that particular story or genre. But the difference is that each of us is unique. And the wonderful thing about these stories that you bring us is it's almost like you hold a magnifying glass up to these qualities and traits that make someone so lovable, even if they're flawed, right? We still love them. I think that's also when you were talking about Benny and humanity, you've chosen to write a story about a nice guy. And I think these days, when a character isn't sarcastic, the way that I think so many people handle their distress is through sarcasm. And Benny's not sarcastic. He's incredibly earnest. It's not that he doesn't have a backbone. It's that he has such an openness about him. That openness puts you on edge because you're nervous for him. So you've created this tension just based out of the fact he shows up vulnerably. And that makes him more courageous than most other characters. They've got their flak jacket on, so to speak, and they can dodge bullets. But this guy is earnest. And you just hope that he has a soft fall in the way that you set him up. Um, and I'm curious, they say that an author, novelist, should never even write a memoir because if anyone wants to know who we really are, just read all of our books, right? And now you have how many? 109 right now, if I'm doing the math. So we could read all of those and see your humanity. And we've chosen to write about a nice guy. And, and a nice guy is maybe how they respond to the world. And I'm going to segue back. Your childhood wasn't exactly a bright spot in your life. You struggled growing up in a family with an abusive alcoholic father who you found out later had a mental illness. And so when you graduate from Shippensburg, you've written this short story for the Atlantic Monthly, and then you take a first job and you taught, if I remember this, at the Appalachian Poverty Program. How did that influence the direction of your writing career and influence your own humanity and your compassion for others, which I definitely feel you bring to all your characters, even if they're like the most evil ones, right? That was an interesting job that year. I forget what I may have mentioned about it, but I was a free-floating teacher. I had no homeroom. I moved all over the school. And I had very small classes, like 
10 kids in a class. And they were all supposed to be kids who came from very poor families and had no advantages whatsoever, but were bright and capable if they could be reached. So it was supposed to be more of a tutoring uh, position and more one-on-one that you get in class at very 40. But what I didn't realize, oh, maybe it took me a week, that teachers who selected the student to send you did, and this makes perfect sense after you think about it, they didn't send me their star pupils. They sent me the ones who've been to a reform school and had police records and were disrupting their classes. So I suddenly found that all these kids that I was dealing with were serious problems and had serious pasts. And I had to develop ways to deal with them that didn't get me killed. They were very physical. So we got very physical in class. I remember one game was I would have a softer rubber ball, but when we'd be talking, I'd raise a question that they should know the answer to. If they missed it, if I called on somebody, they didn't know it. I fired this rubber ball. If they caught it, normally it hit them. But if they caught it or scooped there off the floor, once they had possession, they could fire it at me anytime they wanted as the class proceeded. So we always had these games that kept them physically challenged and got their uh, adrenaline levels high enough that they were not sleeping at their desk. And in the course of that year, I really came to see that, first of all, almost none of these kids had the ability to go successfully on college, but all of these kids were smarter than anybody gets credit for. And all of these kids had potential to be someone better they had been to this point. You're listening to the Page One podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. I'm Holly Payne, your host and producer, and I interview the world's master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their books. Today's episode is brought to you by the learning platform, Five Things I've Learned. As a former professor of creative writing, I am an ardent supporter of lifelong learning. So Five Things I've Learned is something I really like. In full disclosure, it's something created by folks I know. My friends at Five Things I've Learned make it super easy for artists, writers, musicians, and the thinkers they admire to offer online classes that share the essential ideas and experiences of a lifetime. This entire thing was conceived during the pandemic, and it's brilliant. There are almost a hundred five things I've learned unique sessions already available online from all sorts of disciplines. And the best part, they're always live and you can check out the archive for classes you've missed. And of course, there are so many great classes by writers. So check this out. New York Times bestselling writer Meg Wolitzer just did a class about five things she's learned about writing about family. Steve Allman just did a class on what he's learned about where stories come from. There are many more two-hour classes and workshops from award-winning authors like Isabel Allende, and the wonderful travel writer, Pico Iyer, and even from my friend, the writer and publisher, Brooke Warner, and a whole lot more. You can view these and many other great classes on demand anytime. So I hope you get to experience one of these live workshops yourself. So check out myfivethings.com. And now back to the show. Part of my job was to find out about their home life, which were almost universally terrible. And as a consequence, you could see they had not been given the chance their own parents gave 
no chance. And it became apparent to me that one class a day wasn't going to do that. It wasn't going to change their lives. But it might reach them in minor ways to make them think differently about things. But what happened was I got a lot out of it because it showed me that you could write about people uh, as anomalous in ways that them surprising, that reveals things about them. Not that, oh, they killed their grandmother when they were nothing, that really novelistic thing, but more subtle things about them that make them rounded characters. And there wasn't one of these kids that didn't have complex personality. And yet that complex personality was a good person, uh, mediocre person, sheep and a bad person. And how they would proceed in life depended on more than just what one teacher could do. But it did show me that, and because teachers made an impact on my life, that one teacher can make them stop and can open up the door of one little idea of the possibilities of life. And that uh, can lead them somewhere quite unexpected as an English teacher I had with me. In that sense, I hope I did something wise with a few of them, but dealing with them did a lot to shape me as a writer. Absolutely. Even throwing the ball to those guys, if they catch it, they feel seen. They've just received something from you. And I just do you feel that when a character shows up, if you see their complexity and you see their humanity, they will open it to you even more where you get that glimpse of incredible depth and those facets of complex personality. Do you think you would have had that if you hadn't taken that first job? Oh, I think life would have brought you to it sooner or later if you observe it, but it forced me into it. I may have said the last time, the person ran, I graduated at North College in the first uh, or middle of October, right after my wedding. And uh, I had gone through faster in about three years by taking extra courses because I wanted to get married and I wanted to get on with life. And I think life would have brought me to it. But in this case, when I walked into that job, I never thought in the beginning, why is this job at a school not open until late October? It was because the man who had it ahead of me got run off the road by his students and beaten up and was in the hospital and went back. And I didn't find that out until I was already in the job. And I was dealing with the same kids. So we never had that kind of problem. And that also made me start to think, why did this other person have this very serious problem with these very same kids? And I did, and it wasn't because I'm a big guy, which I'm not. And it wasn't because I really know how to be tough. Uh, I think that they just felt I cared about them. How they felt that or how they received it. Uh, is something of mystery of the But as a consequence, we got along. And that was a very good thing in many ways. But also, uh, you said about characters who come on and they start to open themselves to you. And when you give them a chance, which is why I say to young writers, don't think about any character as just their job. Because I have written novels about the 
character is a bartender or a short wooded cook or something like that. And so it isn't about their job. It's about who they are as a person. And even if you want to write about somebody who's a CIA agent, don't think that takes care of the job of rounding out that person. You've got to think much harder about that. If you're going to write somebody who's memorable. And in the book I'm writing now, I have a character who's quite funny, uh, but has had some tragic background. I didn't know what that was, what that tragic background was. I just knew that it was something that he's covering up with his youth. And I never gave it any thought, but at some point, he suddenly started to tell me by something he was doing. And I stopped. I said, wait a second. Why is he going to what is he doing? That has nothing to do with the story. But I have learned that characters will shape themselves if you let them. If he wants to go, in this case, to a graveyard, I don't know why, but let's follow him there. And in the scene with him, I never found out. But I started to get a sense of something in this past that was shaped very substantially in his and by this point, now I've written enough that I know what that is. But if I hadn't let him know where he wanted to go, uh, he wouldn't be the same character. And I find that the most mysterious and interesting thing when you're writing is that those characters take the story places you never would have thought was going to go. And it's always better than your first time. We talked a little bit about quantum physics in the last discussion and what you're getting at here. That is the mystery. There's that intimacy that happens with the characters. What you're describing is in that space where you're alone in your head with them and you're at the keyboard and you're doing the dance and you trust the character versus leading from your head right? You're following the character that shows up for you. And we don't know where they come from. I don't know where my characters are coming from, but you just trust. And it doesn't matter if it's taking place in the 13th century or modern day. It's just we're in touch with a being that has multiple dimensions who we have to have respect for on the page, which you do so well. You've birthed a massive population of people who represent the human condition in the 109 or 110 books that you've written. That's incredibly mysterious. You talked earlier that you don't like to overthink. You don't like to overplot. And I wonder if you could speak to this. If you follow the characters and what they do, that is the plot, isn't it? Yes, it is. If you have the plot first and the characters are forced to follow it, it's not organic and it's not going to be as successful or as appealing as something that's character driven. And also, when you have a cast of people that are interesting, they start defining each other for you. They do it in the way they address each other in the jokes they may make with each other in the concerns they have about. And then the characters, all as a team, essentially, become richer and richer. Almost, it's something you can't even quite comprehend. And as a consequence, it really matters that there aren't what I would call walk-ons. There aren't characters that just come on for 
a chapter to get the character from here to there. Yes, somebody comes in on the story, no matter for four pages. I think it's important that we see them really rather vividly. And we did. we're not going to have enough time to have a deep sense of, but we need to get some sense of them. It sticks in your head so that when you get to the end of the novel, if you think back on it, you remember that character who came in and moved something along. You remember them as a person. That well, it brings a great deal to the novel uh, to help it make, make it feel like something real. And in the bad weather for it, there's a story taking place in our time, and there's a story taking place in Benny's child. And we see that Benny's been put upon most of his life. But for a segment of his life, he was in boarding school. And so there's a lot of characters that come go through that. And the two characters become his friends that are each remarkably different from Benny. But the way those three people interact with each other teaches you about not only the other two, but Benny himself and how he evolves out of this friendship in my head. Editor said to me, I really would like you to write something else with that has this kind of structure in it that we get to see these characters in the past and get to know them as kids because I think that really brought a lot to the book. And the book I'm working on does the same thing. It takes you back to these characters when they were all 14 year old birds that got together as a matter of survival. And really grounds you in seeing how these adults became how they became. And it, it becomes much more interesting and real. So, so is that a prequel to The Bad Weather Friend? No, it's totally separate. So oh, it's totally separate. But it's based on her suggestion that there's so much here. And she was suggesting, can you write a story that's With where we get to know? Okay. The kids. Yeah. She, what she said, pat myself in the back, you write kids very well. And you get inside their heads really well, and they'd like to see you drink more of that. In this way, that see the adult characters so much more strongly. Now, I haven't been doing it by starting with the kids. I keep taking, they're not actually flashbacks, they're entire scenes in a cohesive narrative. And uh, I love that. I wrote a lot with you could see the based on the person who is going to become Bailey and the influences me. And that's a great pleasure. Characters for me are a great pleasure. Clearly, because that's everything. I think so many people, when they think of someone who's writing at the level that you are in terms of a, a particular genre, which is suspense kind of thrillers, but if people are aware of the canon of your work, it's all character-driven. It's all there. It just happens to be that what the characters are doing fall under the genre of suspense because there's suspense in the outcome of their choices, which you're following in a play-by-play -play way, which is a whole different way of coming to this craft. As you said, it's the most authentic way if you want to create memorable characters, if you want people to actually not only have them land, obviously they land in the head first because that's where it's registering, but really in the heart, you have to love the characters before anyone else does first. And that is so clearly a hallmark of your work. 
it also, I think, involves faith. Because if you do the process this way, it, it, and this is what I wanted to ask you is like, when you're done, you told me that you sit at your desk, right? I think at 7 a.m., you write till 4. You don't like to eat lunch because it slows you down. But you do get up, you take a shower, take the dogs out, and you have your breakfast at your desk, if I remember that. Is that your routine? Yes. Okay, so we know we have this time where Dean Koontz is in his flow. And if we were to understand what's happening in that flow, you're not looking at outlines and stuff, right? You're literally showing up to the page and what happens because you are responding versus trying to plan something out. If you try to plan it out, you've basically got a series of events and you know what those events are and your focus becomes moving from event to event. When you do it this way, the characters are driving it and a moment will arise, not one, hundreds of them during the course of the project. And it would not be an event that you would think of including because it's not on the surface, it's not driving the suspense or anything else. But when you allow that event to occur because the characters are taking it there, it does affect everything in the book in a positive way. And oftentimes I'll be finishing something like the book I'm working on now. I have a scene between two characters and that is conveying important information because it pushes our lead character into his future and he moves forward the next day again, this happened. We got to get him to this place of peril. But in a place in between, lots of things can happen that are interesting. Not everything in a suspense novel needs to have guy hanging off a cliff. There are plenty of things in life that can maintain a sense of suspense while you're getting into the major action sequences, let's put it in movie terms, while you're moving into action to action sequences, those little interim things can be funny, they can be moving, and they can also add to a sense of jeopardy. And it's just letting those little moments take place. And they become sometimes the thing that I was just devoured in a book. Or that's the moment I think, if I hadn't let that happen, what would this book be like? And it's just, it's dealing with, in the midst of the suspense, dealing with the quotidian things of life that are obnoxious for most of us, things we have to do that we don't want to do. Like, this character has to move that to a new apartment, but some pretty amazing little things start taking place as he does that will carry the story forward, that aren't what the story is about, but it enriches the story that it is about. It's a very mysterious thing to talk about. I just wrote an essay called The, the Mystery of Inspiration, because where do you get your ideas? Most of the time, you can't even say. They just showed up, and that's the most exciting about this. That's it right there, right? You told me that you deal with life in between books, maybe a few days, but then you have to get right back to the new book. Do you think your draw is because it's not so much about the words on the page and writing the book, it's about the dance with the mystery? Is that what's drawing you back time after time? Because honestly, 
you really are one of the most prolific writers on the planet in our lifetime. There has to be this connection and inspiration coming from this dance that you do with this mysterious phenomena that happens when you're allowing the character to show you the way. I always want to know exactly where it's going, uh, where it's going to. Now, if I wanted an outline, I would already know when I start the book. I would become bored. Yeah, it's partly the mystery of the characters, mystery of the story. How am I going to resolve this? But more than that, what's actually happening? The approach is more like this actually happened. I don't know where it's going, but I have to write it in order to find it. I'm the audience. I'm not the creator so much. And you also have to have a sort of attitude that you're going to take risks with everything. And I think if you outline, you don't take risks with anything. And I came across a quote from Thomas Hardy, the great novelist, that I used as an epigraph in the book. But I thought that's exactly true when you're writing. You have to think this way. And he said, there are a lot of things that we can't believe have happened, but there's nothing that couldn't happen. And that's absolutely right. We, if you look through history and you look through like, the most outrageous events, are they are just as they are in, in fiction. And that, a lot of what holds you back is thinking that could or that's a little too over the top. Okay, maybe it is, but then it's your job to make it not so over the top and to make it convincing, but never to limit yourself by saying that's too much or that's too strange. What he said was there's nothing too strange to have happened, too strange to be believed, not too strange to have happened. And then your job is to make it not too strange to be believed. And I think that's based on cause and effect, right? If something's strange, you can figure out how it happened. There's always a causality. Yes. Well, also, we live with a very blinkered idea of the world. The world is a rich and very strange place. And it's so strange that we tend to blinker ourselves because it gets scary to contemplate the world and its breadth and depth. And if, if you read a lot of science, and you, let's just take, let's take Darwin. When Darwin came up with his theory, nobody knew what was in a human He said it was a carbonized out human. So in other words, each cell was one thing. Now we know that there are literally thousands of parts in a human cell, and nothing in the cell works without all the other parts. And the protein chains in the cells go on and on, hundreds of molecules in a single pregnancy. The more you learn about the complexity of things, this, it, it isn't reassuring. It's spooky as hell. And that, as a consequence, uh, we just blinker in so we can hint. And part of a writer's job is both the blinkers out. Yeah, and I think that's the faith and the courage of a writer is to enter into all the aspects of what's possible. You have to be able to at least be curious enough to explore and go down the dark hallway, so to speak. Um, it doesn't have to be darkness or viciousness or even violence, but it's, huh, what is possible, right? And I often think that 
what's possible shows up on the page first. I, I often feel that there's not a whole lot of difference between the the person who's playing around in sci-fi with being able to foresee the future or you're already inside the future and you're bringing that to the page in present time. I don't know. I don't have any answers, just speculation, but that's a, a really vulnerable and powerful place to be as a creator to have access to those portals. And I love that you're so open to this and that you just keep showing up. My partner said, ask him, how does he keep doing it? He just sits down the next day. I'm like, pretty much. Maybe like a day or two goes by, but he just sits down and starts the next one. But now I think we've shed light on a little bit of what gets you back to the seat. It's again, it's not so much the egoic, oh, here's another Dean Koontz novel that's going to inevitably be a bestseller, which you have the Midas touch. But it's beyond that. This is not even an egoic experience for you. It never was. You're just in that morphic field. Like you have access to it whenever you want. And you do it in this really humble way of allowing these characters to come into your life. You get to know them. You respect the humanity. You allow them to reveal it slowly but surely until you have all of it rendered and in terms of what the reader would need to understand to also have that same respect and love for them and and understand them. Even a fun character who's the UPS delivery driver, she's running in place at the beginning. You provide a few brushstrokes about her backstory and it was really well done. I'm like, oh, I love her. Let's see if she comes back. Yeah, that's what I've been about. What happens? She kind of just when somebody delivered the package. And you would say you could have had a doorbell ring and the package was on it. You didn't even have to have care. Yes, you don't. But when the package is going to be delivered, I think this is an opportunity for Benny to interact with somebody. And that doesn't matter that we won't see this person again. If in his interaction with them, we get an additional sense of who Benny is. And it's not telling the audience who he is. It's how his interaction with the character plays out. And it plays out in a way that you like Benny and you actually like this other person like to follow him or her. And that, yes, that's what I think makes fiction compelling. You just read a page or two somebody is not showing up, you're so interested in think I'd like to know more about that person. And at the same time, you're learning more about the lead character. I would love to talk about dialogue because you have revealed his optimism and his response with that walk-on character, the UPS driver. Even though he's had a really crap morning and it's going to get even worse, uh, he still has hope. And I think that's also one of the great things about your stories is you're fighting nihilism. Your upbringing wasn't easy. Your childhood in Pennsylvania was tough. And I think so much of what we talked about here and getting to know the characters is you're waiting for them to trust you so they can reveal kind of their core wound. And then you work with that. And once that's given to you, you're like, I have the missing piece. And when that's understood as a writer, you can do so much with a character, even if they're vile, because the reader will still have compassion. They'll understand that they weren't created that way. It's that there were circumstances that they were surviving that made them that way, which is why I think when you tossed the ball to those guys in, in this poverty program, you actually were tossing a ball to them saying, I see you. Every time they caught that and they throw it back, they were having a real interaction with you where most people probably just didn't even care. 
they didn't give a shit about who they were and you did. And you do that with all of your characters and you do that about life. And yet you hadn't had an easy go of it. And you told me you don't travel much. You don't like to get on a plane. And you had such uprooting in your own childhood that being at home and working on these books is the world that helps you cope. The wounds are always there. How do you maintain your optimism, especially now? And I think this book, The Bad Weather Friend, is a response to that because we've all had a Job moment. Life is going to precipitate, right? We're going to get caught in a rainstorm. Some people might call it a shitstorm. And how are you going to respond? And you've responded so well in what you've provided us with all these stories that are your legacy. How do you do that? How do you maintain your optimism? The opposite is depression. I don't want to spend my life depressed. I have said to people, happiness is choice. And some people just believe, you know, how can I be happy when I've got all this stuff going on? When I was a kid, it wasn't a good home life. I've been on that road and explained it before. It we never knew if we had a roof over our head. We never knew if there was food on that table, there was violence, there was alcoholism, all the rest of it. But I could always find something that appealed to me, something that made me happy. Books were an early part of that. But everything that I felt that could relieve that is something that I glommed on to and shaped my life. Because I started reading books to escape that house and to find the fun wasn't going to be in that home. And because I did this or did that, it drove my whole life. And I, I got to the point where uh, I don't see a need to travel. I don't see a need to do the things that a lot of people do to have fun for the simple reason that all I wanted when I was a kid was a home with staying. And once I got that as an adult, making it for myself. Hey, this is paradise. I know what life was like for 18 years when it was zero stability and no, no caring almost to speak up. My mother was a good person, a little remote. My father was not a good person. And I know what that is, and that's what I don't ever want in the end. So now that I've got this stability, I'm thinking, why do I to do anything else? But what I do that makes me happy, and this makes me happy. I think it makes so many people happy, Dean. We are so grateful. And I think through your body of work, you're providing a home for other people. There's stability in your work and what you, what you understand, what you're carrying forward about the human condition and what's possible in life. And yes, we get to go on these wild, zany adventures and have a lot of fun, but at the heart of it is the heart, right? Excuse me, I, I got teary-eyed and I'm, dry, I'm wiping my nose. You are just an extraordinary talent. I hope so many people get to read your latest, The Bad Weather Friend. It sounds like you already have another one out, out the door and you're starting on your other. So I think that makes it 113. I wrote four books since we started. <laughs> it was 109, now it's 113. Okay, so. now it's 113. Okay. Yeah. You're going to dust Henry James. You're going to dust him. This has been so fun. I'm just so grateful. Thank you for making time. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. I, I hope I was coherent.
more than coherent, magical, and so wise. I wish you the best with the Bad Weather Friend. I encourage everyone to check it out and to be familiar with your work. It's just extraordinary. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. You've been listening to Page One, a podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. I'm the host and producer, Holly Payne, and I interview the world's master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their latest book. If you're an aspiring writer or a book lover curious about how stories are made, the Page One podcast offers inspiration, wisdom, and some tips of the trade from the world's greatest authors. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I can't wait for you to tune into the next one. If you like Page One, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast players. And please share this episode with your friends and family. Until then, keep writing. The world needs your stories. And keep reading. Books are medicine for the soul. I hope Page One helps you discover something you'll love. If you'd like to learn more about my writing, coaching, or books, you can find me at hollylynnpayne.com or on Twitter and Instagram at hollylynnpayne. Thank you.